Hi, welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, author of Fuck Like a Goddess, creator of Radical Awakenings, transformational coach, and student of life. I'm here to stand with you asking questions about what is sacred and what is profane and the space between. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. So on today's podcast, I have Eve Bradford, an incredible poet, witch, teacher, artist, truly a deep, deep practitioner when it comes to spirituality. You don't find these kind of spiritual teachers out in the world so often because they're not out there advertising as much. And I'm so glad we get to tap into the rich well of wisdom she holds today. So I hope you enjoy this deep, deep juicy podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the Holy Fuck podcast. I have a very dear, beautiful soul here today. And I, I guess I probably say that about everybody. So, um, But I will say that when I met Eve, my heart was deeply touched and she's a newer friend. And I'm just happy to introduce you all to her work. And um, yeah, she's an incredible artist, poet, and teacher, amongst many other things. And today's conversation is probably going to be very rich and deep. So if you're in a zippy kind of like fast-paced headspace, maybe save this one for the bathtub or a place where you can really drop in, where you can really be with us. But you know, if you're on the treadmill, I'm not saying you can't listen to this conversation. (laughs) Okay. That's the only disclaimer. Hey guys, we're going deep. Um, (laughs) Eva, I would love to just start by hearing a little bit about you and your background. I know you have such a rich and diverse background and um, I want to hear more too. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, so yes, like many of us, I think these days, there's not a single category that I feel like I fit squarely into. And part of the journey of my life has been um, recognizing that as a really important archetypal capacity in the world that is so focused on specialization and categorization and fitting neatly into a soundbite that you can present about yourself. And, um, that's never really been something I'm capable of doing because what I've learned over time is that there's a thread of a particular orientation towards being alive that can take a lot of different forms and wants to take a lot of different forms because, you know, we're interdisciplinary creatures and the world is interdisciplinary. It doesn't actually exist in categories. And, and so from a pretty young age, I've been, you know, I, I oriented towards interdisciplinary training as an undergrad at Gallatin at NYU. And, and it's just, you know, been that way ever since and before. So I think at the core from a very young age, I've been oriented towards depth and towards um, a relationship with the non-human world, a relationship with the invisible world, the holy, the sacred, um, through sensual experience, through creative experience, through um, some sort of sense of ecstatic aliveness. And, and so, you know, poetry has been a thread ongoingly 
a love affair with language has been, you know, a, a thread ongoingly. And then, you know, that was a lot of training. My MFA is in creative writing and, and, you know, I've, I've published a book of poetry and, but what I found actually within the MFA program is that being in school for poetry did more to alienate me from why I wrote poetry than to bring oh, me into wow. contact with it. And so that led me elsewhere, you know, and into areas of study and inquiry. I'm a, a lifelong student. I love learning. And um, I just feel like I've been following threads yeah. for a long time that called to me at an intuitive level. And so that's led to a deep study of <clears throat> history of um, earth-based wisdom traditions, of the sort of intersections of imperial and indigenous history um, and ancestry and the, the deep roots of what it means to have a sensual relationship with the elemental world, right? And wanting that and, and, and wanting, knowing that's in me somewhere, but feeling pretty distant from it within our current culture. So I followed a lot of threads there in a lot of different ways. And then eventually, finally, thank God, thank all the wild gods that I, I found myself into uh, embodiment practice yeah. that also integrated the poetic, the mythopoetic, because I've, I was pretty alienated from my body for a long time. And so that was really a missing piece of, I always felt in my body when I was having sex, right. But mm -hmm. the rest of the time was sort of like unsure of that relationship. And so that's been the past many years, past four years or so have been really oriented towards this integration of the somatic with the mythopoetic. And so that's sort of where I'm located now is at that intersection of deep earth-based elemental ecological understandings integrated with the sexual and the erotic and the sensual and the understanding of the self as an integrated whole that includes the body and the intellect and the imagination and the emotions. Mm, yeah. Okay, I want to stop you there because I have so many questions about so many things you just said. So um, everybody keep your seatbelt fastened. Um, well, I would love to hear your definitions of some of the things that stood out to me that I know that everyone listening is probably curious about and also wants to hear your um, understanding of the word depth, the word embodiment, the mythopoetic, um, and... You know, I, don't, I think you said Eros somewhere in there, but I know that the erotic and Eros is an important part of your work. And I'm just curious from your lens, because those are all such, it's like almost like a constellation in a way, right? Like those elements intersecting with each other. I'd love to hear Eve's perspective and everybody listening, because you probably hear all these other people's perspectives on what is erotic, what is sensual, what is embodiment mean. And, and truly these are almost like, experiential understandings, right? So there's really no one definition. So what is, what is Eve, what is depth to Eve? What is embodiment to Eve? Mm. Well, I love defining terms. <laughs> it's like, that's an erotic practice for me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, 
um, in this context, I would say when I talk about depth, um, you know, depth is always sort of in relationship to surface yeah. in a way. Right. And so I'm coming from a pretty foundationally Taoist lens at this okay. point in my life. So I'm always thinking about polarities and okay well you tell dying. people that don't know you know like i know a lot of people know something about Taoism, but like just a little quick explanation so that we don't leave anyone out <laughs> yeah i mean it's a there's a lot of different things that that can mean um right. for just, me i yeah i work in a lineage of of practice that is mm-hmm. it's a it's basically a spiritual philosophy comes originally from China and the roots of it, which some people don't realize are actually quite shamanic in nature. Mm. It, it really comes out of a relationship with the natural world, with the elemental world that gradually became codified. And, and I actually work in what's called a post-Taoist lineage, which is an integration of those Taoist understandings with archetypal psychology with which is like the term mythopoetic that you heard me use comes from the lineage of Jungian psychology and so that's kind of where I'm sitting and it has a lot to do with you know an understanding of the Tao as this sort of you know mysterious unnameable unknowable fundamental source of procreativity and life force energy and then how that is manifest in each of us and really cultivating a relationship with it actively mm-hmm. so and then that differentiates into the symbol we're all familiar with right the yin yang symbol which yeah which i feel like in the 90s was super popular like i definitely had a yin yang necklace i mean yeah and probably <laughs> didn't really know much no. about it other than like i got it cool. hot and it was kind of spiritual <laughs> exactly um but it has to do with this <clears throat> with dynamic paradox which is yeah. something that i've been fascinated by my whole life and it's what fundamentally drew me to Taoism is this it feels very close to my own actual lived experience of the world which is that there's something dynamic and vital that happens in the space between opposites that are equally true Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so the thing that made me start talking about this in the first place was this mention of depth and surface right so it's not like one is good and one is bad. Right. It's this understanding that there's a relationship at play between depth and surface and that they need each other. They don't mm-hmm. exist without each other. Right. Yeah. And so when I talk about depth, automatically there's an implication of surface. Right. Yeah. And so when we talk about depth, we're talking about getting down below what's immediately obvious, getting yeah. down below the first thing we see and know and mm. getting into the mystery, getting into the invisible world, getting mm. into deep intuition. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's to me, like what depth carries mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. And thank so you. thank you for explaining that, just because I think that. You know, that is a word I have a relationship with as well. And I think people that have worked with me or come to any like retreats or classes, it's like, we don't do a ton of surface work. <laughs> but no. so, you know, I like how you said that surface isn't bad. You know, I think surface can get a bad rap, but it's only because I think culturally um, we tend to 
stay there. You know, that they're exactly. say we very loosely, um, but like the overculture at large tends towards the surface. It's, it feels a bit safer, right? It's like when you're in the ocean, like going to the deep bottom of the ocean is completely unsafe and crazy and dark and you don't know what's there. And that's where like all of the, you know, amazing, you know, uh, old, you know, monsters of prehistoric times or something. But I think that just for people to understand with spiritual practice or any type of practice, depth has um, that same mystery and it usually comes with a little bit of fear associated with it. And because it's, it is the unknown, it's working within the unknown realms. And so our society um, at, at large in the Western world um, is more comfortable with what we can see, which totally makes sense. And I just wanted to kind of add that context for people. So when we're entering into the spiritual realms or the realms of mystical practices, we are working with the unknown. We have no fucking clue, you know? I mean, there's some uh, some clues that we have. I, I mean, but we do and we don't. And we interpret them through our own lens of experience. And so... But that's part of the magic. Like that is, if if anyone, you know, listening is part of the seeker who's curious about the mystery. It's like you're constantly walking towards that part of the ocean that you don't know what's there. And so teachers that escort us into those realms, like Eve, are, um, <laughs> it's like a really bold and brave thing. And I, I say this to people that come to my classes and like it's not for the faint of heart a lot of there are people who come and then they're like this is too too much for me and and you know like they mm -hmm. leave and that's totally okay it's not a bad thing not everybody is drawn to kind of swimming in those depths so just wanted to to, to kind of add my little two cents to that as well mm, I love it it's and you know a lot of the work that I do has to do with being able to recognize and come into relationship with our own conditioning, our social mm -hmm. conditioning. And, yeah. and, and be in relationship to it so that it's not running us with a lack of awareness. And so that relationship between depth and surface, again, it's really important to have a sense of that depth doesn't exist without the way that it expresses in the world. So the way you know, I love playing dress up, you know, yeah. I love archetypal expression, yeah. which is surface, right? But the surface tends to be where our social conditioning exists. Right. And so part of recognizing what's actually us, what's the truth of our expression and what is things we've taken on that are not ours, that are expectation and, you know, the way in which we've been really taught we are supposed to be and ways that we're supposed to fulfill external expectations of us in order to come into relationship with that you have to get down underneath it yeah. right yeah. and come in contact with the soul fundamentally yeah. and yeah. with the part of ourselves that is not susceptible to that conditioning yeah and that's yes. in the depth that's in the mystery and then when you make contact with that you come back to the surface and allow the surface to become the expression of that authentic soul level depth. And then there can be this really healthy, beautiful relationship between depth and surface, right? Mm. But that can't happen until you get down underneath it and figure out what's actually your truth. Right, you know? right. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, I love that you just mentioned kind of like almost like this untouchable pure, and I don't mean pure, like in a good, bad way, but like sort of untouched, untouched Mm -hmm. aspect of us that, that exists in there. And I think it's almost so abstract for us to go, what is the soul? Like, does it live in a box in my heart? Like, what does it look like? What is it? And I kind of imagine mine as this like sort of gooey orb of light. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just, I, I like visualize <clears throat> Alexandra slipping away and like my body, my hair, my personality, my, you know, and I'm just like, who is this? What is this essence? Like, what is this? Almost like as if, you know, um, I don't know if you remember the movie Death Becomes Her. I don't know why this is popping into my head, but Isabella Rossellini has this bottle of like youthful essence and it comes out mm-hmm. in this like smoky mist and it's like, you know, is our essence or is our soul texture like a smoky mist that like actually can fill, you know, a state? I have no fucking clue. You know, there's mm. it's it's numinous, it's mysterious, but the practice of seeking to know it and to feel it and to like sniff it out and to like give it space, I think is why many of us do plant medicine ceremony, do ritual work, you know, magical practices, spell work, um, dream work. You know, there's so many, and we can talk more in a minute, but there's so many ways that over time humans have sought to access that, which is this unnameable, unseeable quality of all of us, everyone. Um, So, so from that, and I love you. Before we move on from that, I would just love to offer because within the context that I work inside of, there's a pretty clear understanding of the soul. Okay, tell us. us. And I'd love to just (laughs) drop that in there because I do feel like it's a word that gets thrown around a lot without getting defined because it is so ineffable, because it's so difficult to define. But this is part of what is so cool about this integration of Taoist understandings with archetypal psychology, because the soul is a Western concept, right? You don't hear the soul talked about in Eastern philosophy, particularly in Taoism. And yet there's this really incredible intersection with within uh, traditional Chinese medicine and within Taoism of what's called the Jing, which is the deep sexual essence of a being, right? And but it's sexual in the largest sense of that word, the eros, right, of a being. And what the what has happened through the integration of these lineages of thought is this understanding that the Zheng is actually the substance of the soul. And this is and what this means And what I've come to understand it to mean through my own relationship to practice, this is a very experiential understanding, is that our sexual essence, our zheng, our soul, is the place where our own personal ecology, right? Our own personal being, body, mind, spirit, is in contact with the larger field of procreativity that is the web of life, right? The soul is the place that is like where what I understand as the Tao comes into the personal. And so there's this connection point and that's why it's inviolable. That's why it's not impacted by 
conditioning and trauma is because it's this root that is utterly our point of connection. It's like an umbilical cord. That's exactly how I just saw it in the visual. Exactly. And so if you think about it, what is sexual about us, what is procreative about us is what connects us to the larger field of procreative energy that is life. Life makes more life. Life force energy is fundamentally sexual, right? And so the place where we are most procreative is the place where we are most embedded in the web of life and in that foundational belonging to the web of life and the soul what i understand is that part of the personal that is inextricably connected to the cosmological mm. and to the larger web mm. that's really and helpful. therefore the part of us that knows our place which gets into purpose work and and sort of the ecological application of all of this, which is that the soul knows the way in which we personally came through to fulfill our own destiny that fits into that larger ecology and fulfills our niche in the larger ecology. That's the soul. The soul knows that. that. Yeah. I just saw it as like the first visual that I got was like, like you said, it was before you said the word root, but like almost that there was like these, this kind of like this, this web or this root work that's all connected. And then there's these little bodies and we have this kind of like one tendril of mm-hmm. the great greater mm-hmm. web that's, yep. um, that's in us. And I like that because when I think of soul, maybe in you know, from a like more new age kind of philosophy, it feels a bit more separate, like my soul, mm-hmm. but the way that you just talked about it, I felt like it's almost like a tree that has all these different roots and I am part of the root, but like, I'm, I'm one little, you know, one little piece and my body then extends onward from that, but that it's all connected. Like I like kind of, I love, I like seeing things visually, mm-hmm. um, and that's a good reminder. It's just like, yeah, the soul is connected to everything and the soul is connected to sexual essence. It's not separate. And I think that's where in like more new age philosophy, like things, it's like, it's a bit of a distortion. It's like, oh, you know, this soul is like this kind of high and holy kind of a thing. And I like how you're talking about in the, you know, post-Dow meets depth psychology. It's like, no, the soul is is this part of you that is life force that is like this erotic essence that is the the word jing which i know but you guys are probably just hearing for the first time which is just like i like the word jing because it feels like jing. <laughs> totally <laughs> and that's totally. how jing feels right? well, mm-hmm. at least when, when i kiss my partner that's how it feels <laughs> it's like yeah this enlivening through the whole body um mm-hmm. so thanks for kind of you know giving us that um deeper picture Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how does that then meet the, you know, embodied piece? So say you're a practitioner and you're, or somebody who's just maybe, you know, new to the spiritual path and you're seeking to know yourself at a deeper level. Um, maybe you've done some practices that are in the spiritual zone or in the more mystical, magical zone, but they have felt, you know, really safe and on the surface. And then you're dropping into a deeper practice. And I'd love to hear what some of those are for you and then how they relate to the um, embodied piece, like how the how the depth and the exploration of the depth of our beings actually is an exploration of the body as well. Mm. 
Yeah, such a beautiful invitation. So as someone who, you know, was a a poet and a mystic and a, an intellectual in many ways. I mean, a scholar. you still are, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's your, that's but, your first, your, where you came from. Right? Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, and it's what came most naturally to me. Yeah. And, you know, that conditioning I spoke of, another thing that started to be very embedded was like a pretty deeply embedded hatred of my body. Right. Mm. And the way that we just get trained to hate our bodies, you know, and, and so I was so, you know, where I got validated was for my intelligence and for my mystical nature and for my, you know, the way that I could hold space and, and all of that just took me further and further and further away from feeling like I was inside my body, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. except for when I was having sex. and. what I, what was eventually sort of the pathway in for me, because it's not that I didn't try different kind of more conventional embodiment practices, but they just didn't really land. Which ones did you try just so we know a little bit like yoga or like yoga? I'd like worked at an ashram in the Bahamas for a couple of months and, you know, like (laughs) next podcast, next podcast, (laughs) Um, you know, but yeah, yoga, I definitely like had a, I'm come from also dance floor culture. So I was, you know, in that world for a long time. And that was always kind of the closest I could get to really feeling embodied outside of a sexual context. And, and, but definitely like tried different, even Qigong, but sort of conventional, more conventional available Qigong and like, workout, gym culture, exercise, you know, but it's like what I recognized is that for me, and I found this to be true of many of the people that I work with, is that my my imagination and my poetic nature needed to be included in the embodiment practice in order for it to actually land. If it was just like, you know, physical for the sake of physical, I I couldn't connect to it. It didn't stay. I could do it for a week maybe, but then like I would be engaged elsewhere. And so this notion of the mythosomatic is really at the heart of where I've landed in terms of embodiment practice. So mythos is the imaginal, the mythic, the magical, the mystical, right? That whole realm, the archetypal. And Somatic is the body, the intelligence of the body, right? And so where where I've landed is in the place where what, you know, to speak about it in sort of simple terms, the imagination and the body meet and recognize each other as themselves, that they're not separate, that they're one being. And what I have found is that place where the imagination and the body specifically become directly engaged as allies, that's where healing happens. That's where growth happens. Because, you know, and I've, I've written a lot about this, the way in which we've been sort of convinced that the imaginary is separate from the real, right? And it's, that's a trick of disempowerment. Our imagination is the birthplace of the real. It's where reality begins. Anything that shows up in reality starts in the imagination. 
And so when we engage our imaginal capacity, our mythic power, really, and bring it into collaboration with the intelligence of the body, then suddenly magic begins to happen because we're engaging these really seemingly disparate parts of ourselves and realizing that they're actually not separate at all, that it's all one being. And so the practices that I have really devoted, you know, the last many years to and now teach and hold and carry are mythosomatic practices that are really engaging both of those capacities simultaneously. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is, I can feel it. And like, I can also feel like I, I only understand like the certain capacity of, of it as well, of just like where the imagination myth story, the archetypal comes in and already is in the soma and the body. Um, and I think because of our conditioning, that feels like a leap. Like it feels like, um, you know, it's like, well, how, but why things are so separate and compartmentalized for us, you know, our mental body, our physical body, our emotional body, our spiritual self. And, um, you know, as beings, I feel like we're such babies in that way. (laughs) It's like the fact that we're, you know, still most of us, you know, not able to even deeply conceptualize how, um, how just like the soma or the body holds the soul and, um, you know, holds all of that mythopoetic territory. So I want to give a little bit more for people, if anybody, you know, is so new to this and it feels like so big because it is big. It's a big thing. It's a big concept. It's a big, um, you know, kind of piece to hold. And maybe if you could break it down for us in either like a story or a way that you see that play out. Um, we could feel it a little bit more too, like the, the practicalities mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So one way, one really kind of foundational way to begin to experience <clears throat> this place, that's the intersection, right? The, the fulcrum of mythos and soma, right? Imagination and body since we were already talking about the Jing, we can talk about the Jing, the Qi, and the Shen, right? These are the three treasures of traditional Chinese medicine. And they're understood as three sort of types of energy. But in kind of what we call inherited traditional Taoism, it's seen as a hierarchy, like sexual energy is base, right? And sort of like lower and you refine it, right? And then it becomes chi, which is like life force energy. And then if you're really good, (laughs) you're able to like change chi into shen, which is spiritual energy, right? Okay, cool. And there's this sort of like hierarchy, right? That like kind of exists like in the um, you know, chakra system, right. As well. Totally. Way of just like, you totally. know, you have your lower chakras, like I'm living in my lower chakras. Like it's a less, less holy. Yeah. And it's like unreliable somehow. Right. But the spiritual, which is up, which is totally 
you know, also inherited from monotheistic orientations of like down, bad, up, good. Right. right? Yeah. Earth, bad, heaven, good. Right. Um, that within this sort of post-Taoist framework that I've been describing, we understand it not as a hierarchy, but as an ecology. Right. And a lot of my own work has been around integrating the teachings I've received with my own work within depth ecology. Right. And the way they really intersect. So when we think about how we shift, because it's all in our imagination, right, that hierarchy, that's an imaginal concept that relates to the way energy actually moves in our body. But when we shift that within our imaginal field, And we recognize that Jing, Qi, and Shen are not a hierarchy, that it's Mm. all spiritual, Mm. right? But that it's an ecology, just like nature as an ecology. Like if you look at the natural world, the forest is not a hierarchy. You know, humans call lions the king of the jungle, but everybody knows that bacteria (laughs) is the king of the jungle, right? Mm. Like there's, Mm. there's no, and actually that there's no king, that it's like a web and an ecology where everything relies upon everything else. The natural world is not hierarchical. And so if we begin to relate to ourselves as natural beings, then we see that our foundational sexual energy that life force, that soul is the place where we're in relationship to the larger field of procreativity sourcing from that, that endless source, right? That we are connected to with that image you saw of the umbilical cord and that life force, that procreativity flows into us through the Jing. And then the Jing through the kind of mythosomatic practice I'm talking about, we lift into chi. So that actually, and, and all that means is that the potential that's in the Jing becomes expressed as chi. So potential has to become actual at some point. And in order to move from potential to actual, Jing becomes chi, which is how we move in the world, how we act, how we breathe, how we make decisions, mm. right? That's chi. Mm. And through cultivation, through refining our own energy, that then expands into Shen, which we understand not specifically as spiritual because it's all spiritual, but as transpersonal. It's where we become aware of the patterns and the context beyond our personal story. And then that Shen overflows and feeds back down into the Zheng. So it's it's an ecology of everything feeding everything else. And when we can feel that in the body and when our imagination can hold that as an ecology rather than a hierarchy, our entire actual felt lived experience of our own energy changes. Hello, quick interlude here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, I'd love for you to check out my book, Fuck Like a Goddess, my guide to healing yourself, reclaiming your voice, and standing in your power. Publishers Weekly called it a sharp, forceful debut. It was one of Bustle's best summer reads and a bestseller in three categories on Amazon. These are my methods that I'm teaching to inspire you, challenge you, bring up your resistance so you can face it and get free and unleash your gifts. 
how to let life make love to you, enjoy every bit, and find the magic in all of it guide. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Sounds True, or by visiting alexandraroxo.com book. Thank you so much. It means the world to me to have your support for my work. Back to the podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, well, a lot of us who've been indoctrinated into a monotheistic or Judeo-Christian um, understanding of God or spirit, we are just always thinking, you know, no, ma- no matter how much work I've done, you know, I'm thinking like that my sort of baser sexuality is, is not good. And I mean, I've done so much for, I wrote a whole book that, you know, there's a lot on this, but it's, it is deeply ingrained in me. You know, I had a party the other night and uh, for my birthday and I just wanted to dance with my full wildness as if I was in a queer club in Brooklyn, like living my best (laughs) life. And I think it freaked people out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> definitely created created a divide in people's needs being quite different. And mm-hmm. the thing that arose, it's because some people like kind of left. Um, and the thing that arose in me was like, wow, like when I, when I express still this fullness of mm-hmm. my sexual wildness or erotic being who, you know, at her essence is when, when I sort of peel back the conditioning, like wants to roll around on the floor and crawl around like an animal and like throw her body around and like touch other bodies. And yes, you know, that part of me is so undernourished because like most of us, we're sitting at desks, we're isolated, we're alone, we're in rooms alone. Like we can't really do that at the grocery store. We can't, we can't really do that unless we're in a designated dance class where you're allowed to do that. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so it's like, that, how do we work with, and, and I want to get into a little bit more of the practical for people listening, because I think that that's, you gave us such a great conceptual understanding of this. How do we work with it on like the practical, like we're asking ourselves to deeply reframe, whether it's a yogic understanding or a Christian Judeo-Christian understanding, deeply reframe that our sexual erotic energy is is just such an integral, such a holy part of the ecology of us. And not because we're choosing as rebels outside the system, but because it just is. It's almost like- Because it's fundamentally true. Yeah. Exactly. Because the way <laughs> yeah. that I, I've approached to it is like, I'm working still in relation to the Judeo-Christian or to like the sort of traditional yogurt, yogic hierarchy, yeah. not yogurt, yogic hierarchy. <laughs> By rebelling against it, I'm still in relationship mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So it's still like, being defined by it. I'm yeah. still being defined by it. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I've freed my sexuality, people. I'm no longer feeling like a sinful whore of Babylon. On, like they told me in church and, you know, like I've integrated my, you know, sexual erotic energy and it's flowing up my chakras, whatever it is, it's still in relation to that. And what I'm hearing from you is, Hey people, we can actually define our sexual energy outside of relation to the system of good and bad. That feels very totally liberating. Totally. I'm so grateful that you're bringing it there. It's so important. It's so important. And you know, this is also why working with sexuality inevitably becomes a form of sociopolitical activism because it's very strategic, the villainization of sexual energy. You know, it's it's very much 
an integral part of the success of capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal reality, right? And that because the fundamental truth of sexual energy in its largest sense, which is not just manifest through explicitly sexual um, encounters with self or other, though that's certainly a part of it, it's, it's every form of procreativity within us. When we are deeply connected to that, we are unfuckable with. And that doesn't work very well for systems of manipulation and oppression and commodification, right? So it's really important to understand that, that analysis, to understand the way that our personal power has been systematically undermined so that we can be good little cogs in the machine and not be a threat to that. And, and so there's a reclamation of, of natural essential goodness, right? That comes with this, where what we understand is that that feeling that you have when you're in the place in nature where you just feel so held, whether it's floating in the ocean or walking in the forest or being on a mountaintop or in the middle of the desert, that feeling that you have of life happening mm. around you and you being a part of it, that's sex, mm. that's sex, mm -hmm. that's sexual energy, that's mm -hmm. life force energy moving through you and you feeling it. And that exists in you as the Jing, right? As the soul. And when that, when your personality, which is one way of understanding the chi, is like the way you manifest in the world. When your personality is sourcing directly from your soul, then that's a form of intimacy with self that manifests as quiet, undemonstrative confidence, that manifests as free-flowing creativity, that manifests as generosity with self and other, right? Because your cup is full and you're sourcing from the source, right? And so, and this, it's so important because the systematic villainization of desire as this like unreliable drive, right? Is at the root of our, our disease as a culture. It I mean, really is. And it is in every spiritual tradition. It seems like not the one you're describing, but like, you know, I, I love so much of tantric Buddhism and it's right there. It's like, you're stuck in the desire craving cycle. Totally. And I'm totally. like, shit, I am. And it's, it's still the same frame, you know, it's like, how do we get out of that one frame? And I hear that like you have gotten out of that frame that that's like, you know, um, like I said before, not, it's not the, the kind of culture we came from. And then it's not the rebelling against that culture. It's just like, Oh, actually guys, you guys are kind of in a little kind of loop over there. I'm actually going to hop over to a whole nother dimension where I'm not even in that conversation anymore. And this kind of quiet, like you said, undemonstrative confidence, Let's break it down. Like what, it, how would one enter onto that path? You know, mm -hmm. because I do think that the steps of self, like I go through some of this in my book, like the steps of becoming aware of your conditioning and then, you know, having the great big grief and rage about like 
all yeah. of the the life that you you know could have had if you didn't hate yourself and if you weren't <laughs> healing from a b c d e f g and that all of those pieces are quite important and then maybe going through that process of archetypally rebelling against the thing and then coming out the mm-hmm. other side and um i'm curious for you what it, what does that process look like practically in terms of coming to this greater understanding where you're now sourcing in your soul and you're sort of existing outside of those limitations of of the, the overculture's conditioning so there's this is the role of practice you know this is yeah. the role of of mythosomatic practice right because you can't think your way out of this and doesn't no. work you know yeah. that's this is the importance of the body being involved okay. so this is where we come in with it, the eve's embodiment what is what is embodiment too? yeah so and and there's some really accessible beautiful practices some of which i know you've engaged with um that are intended the the first thing that you really need to do is strengthen what's called the jing chi bridge which is that pathway that the jing travels to move Mm -hmm. from potential into expression right Mm -hmm. and to make sure what we were just talking about that the personality and the soul are in communication with each other Mm -hmm. because while the soul while the jing is inviolable the chi is not right Mm -hmm. the chi is the part of us that does get conditioned that does get impacted by trauma that does all of the things right and so this is the work of practice is to is to really tend to the health of that bridge that pathway so that the communication is flowing and that's a form of self-intimacy and there's you know this is you know the practices are more in their specifics than i can get into here but just to give you sort of a sense of of how they work there's there's practices that work specifically with the sexual energy, right? Mm-hmm. With the Jing. Mm-hmm. Some of them are not explicitly sexual. Some of them are. Mm-hmm. And there are practices that you do with yourself to really cultivate intimacy. Again, this is where we come back to depth, right? To get underneath the patterned conditioned thought because we can't think our way out of it. So we have to get into the consciousness and the awareness that's below conscious thought, which is just to to work directly on the pathway of right. the Jing and the Qi. And there are practices for lifting the Jing and for clearing the pathway and for and for making sure that you know what it feels like to be connected to the Jing so that when you're not in practice and you're in the circumstances of your life, you train yourself to recognize this is right for my Jing. This is not right for my Jing, right? And that way of knowing and discernment, that is part of what gets compromised when the Qi is sort of alienated from the Jing, right? And you don't know what's right for you and you're making decisions based on other people's expectations of you. And so, and then the the mythosomatic Qigong is then brings that fundamental connectivity between Jing and Qi into the full range of archetypal intelligence, where through these movements that have both somatic and mythic components, right, which is what makes these practices really unique from other forms of Qigong, is that engagement of the mythos, so that you're practicing within this really 
profound liminal space where you're actually resourcing yourself in practice. It's not a metaphorical practice, right? It's you're resourcing yourself inside of practice with different capacities, with the capacity to move between will and surrender, with the capacity to source your intelligence from the Zheng, from the soul, with the capacity to discern between this and that, right? And these, this is in the body. These are motions that we make with the body rep repetitively over time that actually bring that intelligence into the body so that when you go back into the world, you're resourced so that as circumstances arise, you're prepared you're ready to, to stay in the body. And this is something that has really become the center of my teaching. I think partially because it's so much of what these practices did for me is really the fundamental capacity to stay in contact with your own experience when you are also in contact with the world and with other people and with the immensity of you know, the state of reality at this time that you can really stay in contact with both, that it's not either or, and we don't have to dissociate. We don't have to numb out. We don't have to go into overwhelm. Yeah. We can stay with experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love, I love that just, you know, as um, an explanation of there's something so poetic and gentle about how you're explaining this energetic practice that's like energy meets body in a way, right? It's like working with yeah. these different energies in the body yeah. and then moving your body at the same time. And so it's like, it's almost like you're, you know, reconnecting and recollecting and redistributing all these different mm -hmm. energetics through the body. And, mm -hmm. you know, do I think people do that in so many different types of traditions, right? Where it's like working with energy, how to move it. What I like, because I have been able to practice some of this, this particular practice, though it's not, you know, I teach very differently and it's not my particular thing that I teach, but I've been able to, since my partner practices it, um, and there's such grace mm. with it. Mm. It feels like a mm. smoothing over of the jagged edges mm. of this kind of like self, you know, fragmentation that can happen with being pulled in many directions in life with having fear about like what's happening out there. Um, with me be feeling like, Oh, I'm not really relating to my sexual energy. It feels dormant, you know, there's, there's an aspect of this like reweaving together that I think is really mm. beautiful. And I do think that, you know, there, there's so many different ways that people recollect and reconnect and reweave themselves together. What I'm really hearing about this particular practice that I love is that there just is no fucking hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even in the sort of popular spiritual space, it's like some emotions get a bad rap, like some expressions of sexuality get a bad rap. Like there's yeah. still almost this sort of like judgmental air um, about what is spiritual or not, or, you know, what we need to kind of conquer. Like I was just driving and I like, this guy was talking behind me. And I really wanted to just, I was just like, I let rage bubble up in me and 
because I was annoyed because it's snowing and I need to drive slow. Okay. Um, and I was like, you know, my immediate thought was Alexander, you should, you should really not be so reactive, my love. Like, you know, you should right. really like tame that rage. <laughs> that, you know, you should be a little nicer, you know, and, and, and that's the thought pattern for me when these are emotions are obviously, I don't want to go running around town projecting and hot potatoing and reacting to every single thing that happens, but the ingrained thoughts like that when something's moving through you, that there's just this immediate judgment, you know, comes from that conditioned place, whether it's, um, a sexual urge or an emotional urge or um, that we need to tame them or get rid of them or, uh, you know, sort of like harness them in a way that they're, they can be, they can be good and quiet. What I'm, what I'm hearing is like, and, and I want to bring this down to the emotional realm, but what I'm hearing is that in the ecology of this mythopoetic somatic practice, it's not really about that. It's not, it's not, um, it's not about like getting rid of things, you know, or like sort of getting rid of things. Totally. So where do the emotions fit in? Like, do you, do you, where do you put them in that practice <laughs> or do they, mm. do they work? Like, where do they live? <laughs> yes. Thank you for asking. It's so important. So first of all, we understand desire as the voice of the soul actually. Mm-hmm. Right. So the soul speaks in desire mm. and And we make a distinction between, you mentioned the desire craving cycle, right? So we make a distinction between desire and craving, right? And this is why these spiritual that you're mentioning, these kind of spiritual, new age spiritual uh, truisms about the the danger of desire is that- I meant meant desire aversion, sorry for any of you- Right, or desire aversion, right, yeah. Craving um, is right. Craving aversion. Right. That, but that desire and craving are equated. Yeah. Right. And yeah. to me, the answer is always more nuance, right? More nuance. So there's a distinction. Desire is the voice of the soul. How else do we orient towards what we were born for? But through our authentic desire that and that it is possible. We all know that it's possible to feel like we want something that isn't actually good for us. And that is what happens when the chi is not sourcing from the jing. And that we call craving, right? That is like when, when it's not the soul talking, when it's a trauma response talking or conditioning talking, right? So we make a distinction. It's not that all desire is reliable, right? right? right. But the fundamental voice of the soul as desire, as the way in which the deepest, most intelligent part of ourselves orients us towards the pathways in life that we were meant for, that are right for us, for our soul, then desire itself differentiates into emotion as a way to communicate to us about the truth of our experience, right? Emotion is intelligence, right? It is, especially when we're doing the work of making sure that what we're feeling is coming from the soul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is takes continual, like, you know, work to make sure because there's a lot of forces in the world that would, 
benefit from us not being. But when we are, then our emotions become the way in which the intelligence of the soul communicates us. So anger has a spiritual purpose. Grief has a spiritual purpose, right? It shows us what we stand for. It shows us where our boundaries are. It shows us what we value. It moves us into action when action is called for, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that any emotion has a spiritual purpose. And as we all know, it's possible to be in a relationship with them that becomes stagnant. And and when that happens is the way that, that I understand it is that it's when we begin to identify with Mm -hmm. an emotion to the point where it becomes constitutional as opposed to circumstantial. Mm -hmm. So when we're just angry, all the time and it's not about anything specific we're just pissed right 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 right, right, so that's that's when we begin to look at like okay where is this actually coming from but that does not mean that all anger is bad anger is important you know but i love i just want to highlight 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 circumstantial and constitutional like, and I, and Marianne Woodman, great debt psychologist, she said, like, we, when working with archetypal qualities, we, we have to be aware that we can become possessed by an archetype and our whole life yeah. can be run by this. Almost like we drank the yeah. juice of a particular archetype. And here, 40 years later, you just still live in the rebel life. Like you just haven't kind of <laughs> totally. haven't tried anything else. Um, and I think that that's similar emotionally and it's that mm-hmm. there can be these habitual patterns that become constitutional yeah. that then create physical dis-ease. You know, I think we see that a lot and, you know, we could do a whole another podcast about that in itself, but understanding that difference when, of this, is this a constitutional, is this something that it came from? you know, a childhood pattern? Is this a trauma response that is now deeply constitutional? And that's where, you know, practice gives us an opportunity to change those things that have become constitutional when we're not aware, right? Like maybe you weren't aware that you're always just like a heavy, slow child because life was hard for X reason. And then now you're an adult who's just always sad and heavy. Practice then can create the space to yeah. shift, I think, the constitutional as well. Yeah. And I mean, I know I do exactly. that a lot in, in my work with people. Um, and I see that we're we're like, I, I wanna I wanna just you know see what we wanna close this podcast on because I, I knew that when we talked to that, we could talk for like a few hours. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I do hope that everybody listening, like Eve's work is quite deep. You know, she has a robust intellectual philosophical approach to spirituality. And if you're new to this, I I just, I want you to stay with it because there's a lot of wisdom here, a lot of deep wisdom and somebody like Eve and, you know, I'm going to be honest, is a person that's not flaunting all over the internet and being like, here's my wisdom, 599, show up on Friday. Um, and, 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 she, and she's, I think, you know, my partner's kind of the same way, like a person who holds deep wisdom and um, is, is quite humble and modest seeming around it. And so I always feel like when there are people out there practicing, their lives are spent in practice, not in marketing, that like, these are the teachers we need to live from, learn from and live from, but learn from, because, you know, if I've spent like a whole month marketing and then I show up to teach and I've spent my days marketing, then I should be teaching marketing. 
I should not be teaching spiritual <laughs> practice and, and emotional healing and embodiment, you know? And it's, and it's a, it's a thing that, um, I think because of the internet and this sort of, you know, just so much of a wide variety of, of people that are teaching and sharing about these ancient practices, it can be really hard for people to discern, or maybe, maybe it just takes a little longer and people are busy, <laughs> but, um, but um, I just want to, I wanted to highlight that for people listening that um, people that are out there practicing every day, practicing to, you know, redistribute the energy to reconnect the soul to the life force to work with the sexual energy in a way that's not about fucking or getting off or having so many orgasms so you're like you know a pleasure goddess every day but about something a lot bigger more holistic more integrative mm-hmm. like that's i think it's it's rare so even if this conversation i think you know it holds a lot of kind of key doors that are like kind of half open for you. I I urge everyone listening to like sort of stay curious towards what those doors are. Mm. Um, And then I just, I want to just turn it over to you for this last, you know, few minutes together. It's like, Mm. is there anything else that you feel like it's really important for people to understand about your work, about this world's uh, view, philosophical understanding of, of, um, our being, our souls, um, that you want to share, that you wanted to touch on together? Yeah, I think fundamentally, the thing that I want to say right now in this time of profound upheaval and uncertainty and what can feel like a lot of instability, the thing that I find for myself um, that feels really important is to be cultivating a relationship with the non-human world, right? As a context, as the place where you go to get your vitality, your energy, because as you mentioned, social media, now we can get caught in these loops of experiencing the human world as the whole story. And when we experience the human world as the whole story, then we are really limited in terms of where we can get energy. That means we can only get energy from other people and their validation and their recognition of us. And it's really destabilizing, actually, to get, you know, into that place where you feel like that's where everything happens. And what I find through practice, whether it's, you know, I have a broad field of practice, right? The mythosomatics are one part of it, but also I spend a lot of time just out in nature. I cultivate relationship with the non-human world in a lot of ways, right? And a lot of those are really intuitive. So whether or not you are engaged in sort of a, a particular form of practice, each of us knows deep in our being how to come into relationship with the non-human world, with the natural world, with animals and birds and weather and breath and silence and mm. storms, right? Mm. Mm. And, and to remember that the, the context is the non-human world, that the human world exists inside of. And this is not a bypassing. This is not 
a dissociating. What this means is that our root is into that mythic, liminal, imaginal, natural world so that when we do enter into the human world, we can have a healthy relationship with it Mm -hmm. because it's not the source of all of our energy and all of our meaning. We know that our root is somewhere deeper and more mysterious mm-hmm. and is ours. It's ours. It's not something that anyone can take from us. And it's not something that anyone else can define for us. Right. So then when the human world starts to feel really unstable or feels like that heartbreak of feeling like who you really are, isn't really what's seen or valued that 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 doesn't mean that it doesn't actually have value because you have a relationship with something bigger, right? That's where you come home to and return to and source from. And for me, that's been my sanity in these times, you know, because as, as you recognized, I don't easily translate into sound bites. I don't care to, you know, and, and, and the reason that I have the confidence and the, the center to be able to say that and to know my own value independent of the way in which the human world recognizes me is because of the erotic relationship that I have built with the elemental world. Right. And, and so I would just offer that as a little seed that anyone can follow with or without a teacher. Each of us have that in the core of our being. It's our birthright. Yeah. That is so, so helpful. So helpful as a just great reminder. We become so sort of insular in our understanding of self through each other and each other only, you know, depending on what's going on. And that reminder that the context is much bigger, you know, it's like blizzarding outside my window right now. Like I am just a little, little piece of this, you know, pretty grand intense puzzle that I'm in the middle of here and that there are so many ways. And I think this is where, um, ritual and prayer and song and dance and connecting with plants and trees and waters and sitting by fires and, you know, prayer, I already said, but more prayer, um, where we can look outward towards something larger. And I almost forget that at times, you know, last night I was laying in my bed just praying in a kind of a, a trance, listening to a particular music for a while. And it, I forgot that I have this really deep ability to resource there, but it, it requires for me, deep suffering brought me into that state, deep pain. So it's almost like, um, you know, people need a drug to get into that space. If it's, if you forgot about it, you forgot that sort of you know, the space that extends beyond the human chatter. And I do think deep pain, suffering, grief is a portal and a doorway, which is part of its gift, you know, and if you develop the relationship in the practice, then you don't need mushrooms or you don't need deep grief or uh, a big PMS to draw you into this greater scope. Um 
but it takes slowing down and it takes time. And I appreciate, you know, that, yeah, your teachings aren't sound bitable, even though I'm, I'm, I'm helping do a little translation, you know, because that's part of my gift too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Gemini, I so appreciate that. <laughs> I'm a Gemini rising. I do it with, with my partner too. I'm like, okay, let me just help just translate a few things for the people. <laughs> but totally, I, I also appreciate that. Like, what if we allow some things to be not quite understandable at first glance? Like I said, like a doorway that's like maybe just cracked, you know, and and maybe it's just something that requires a little bit more of a devotion of returning and a little bit of a sustained curiosity. And I hope for all of us out there who are seeking and spiritual practitioners who want to know the mystery, who want to feel into the expanse of who we are, that we don't give up on the practices and the teachers and the teachings that require a sustained return. And like a slowing down, like that's, that's, I definitely feel that in my heart. Mm. Thank you yeah. for that. Thank you for, for coming on today. And um, would you, I'd love to hear uh, anything you have coming up, any offerings, classes. Mm. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure when this podcast will air. So um, mm. probably sometime in April, but it could be May. I'm not <laughs> sure. So, but anything you have just so people know ongoing how to, um, tune into your teachings more. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, beginning to teach in-person immersions again, which is such a pleasure. I so prefer being in person. Um, so we're doing, we did this deep winter poetry camp at Bayle, um two weeks ago, and we're going to do another one in the height of summer up there, oh, the wildflower poetry camp. <laughs> yeah, come. <laughs> it's so magical. It's such an integration of tea ceremony and poetry and sensuality and nature and just it's so fun and there's a lot of of personal time within it it's not super heavily programmed um i'm going to be teaching a weekend immersion at soul hawk in lyons colorado um the last weekend in april um that's called the ecology of eros practice for the apocalypse love um, it <laughs> um and then there and then I have an online immersion um, leading up to the summer solstice, so like mid June. Um, that's going to be um, really this sort of orientation towards building this erotic relationship with the elemental world, which is really at the heart of my own work right now. It's kind of the direction that my work is going in. It's it's has a lot to do with cultivating personal oracular capacity and really tuning into your own ability to, to have, you know, a relationship with the non-human world, as I spoke about in very applied ways. So that's a place to really, um, to begin to explore that if that's of interest to you. And then I teach three drop-in by donation Qigong classes online a week. So that's ongoing, available to all. And um, you can find all of that at originalskin.org. I love that original skin. <laughs> Play on words. Um, so good. So good. Well, thank you for coming. And I just, I was just, as you're speaking, I was just feeling your transmission in my body. And so I also urge everyone listening to feel your body and 
really just note if the transmission of Eve's words had an, an energetic imprint and how you're feeling right now, like in your belly or your heart, if there's a softening along the front surface of your body, if there is something that kind of relaxed in you, because that's always a part of, you know, every conversation, every interaction that we have. So thank you for that. I feel a softening in my heart. So yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo. And you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review. Give us a five-star rating. All of that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon. Mm-hmm.